This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we have something a little unusual. I'm sitting in the living room of Bob Carnuke's house. He's at the Base Institute. Bob, it's a lovely day in Colorado. Thanks for the hospitality. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. You know, we're sitting in the living room. I have a buffalo head behind me with a Sharps 52 carried by one of Bob's family members or built by Bob's family members? Actually, I'm the great-great-grandson of Christian Sharps. If you saw Quigley Down Under, that's a Sharps rifle, mm -hmm. a true grit, you know, that a little beef. You shot the bad guy, Ned Pepper, with Lucky Ned Pepper. That was a Sharps rifle. So I am the great-great-grandson of Christian Sharps. Well, I'll make sure I behave. Behave yourself. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting here. We have this beautiful day. We're overlooking a pond and part of a golf course. Bob, you know, the thing you and I talked in before the show about where we were going to go with this episode. And I'm going to take and go off script and let you explore and talk to some of the folks about what it is that you do and what got you going down this path. Well, it's certainly not a place I'd ever expect to go to in my life. Early on, I received a football scholarship to Fresno State early on and then had a real desire to be in law enforcement. After college, I got involved with the Costa Mesa Police Department. I was about 10 years on the department and FBI trained homicide investigator for the department. And then I got in a really bad shootout and the man died. And I came out here to Colorado and was doing some fly fishing with my brother, Paul. Great guy, Paul Cornick. He was an air traffic controller out here. And I just fell in love with Colorado immediately. And, you know, from L.A. and Orange County and the, the traffic and especially after the shooting, I said, wait a second, I've had a nice experience in law enforcement. And I'm seeing all the older guys kind of straining to retirement, not liking the job, complaining about everything. And I really didn't want to be that. I thought it was a good time to just step away from law enforcement and try some new challenges in life. So I came out to Colorado, and I got involved with real estate development. And within a few years, I had 125 employees and three offices and made partnership with my brother, Paul. He left the air traffic control. And to date, he's very successful real estate. He has about 1,900 employees now in Florida. So he's doing quite well. But we got into real estate, did well together, a good partnership, meshed really well. But during that process, I met a man named Jim Irwin, who was the eighth man to walk on the moon, the first one to drive the car on the moon. And, you know, in our lives, we often are influenced by two things. I think that the two main things are the books we read and the people we meet. Those two things really set us off in a new direction. And we always have that influential person or a few in our lives that are so influential that they sort of take us in a new direction. And Jim had been to the moon. When he came back, he had a real desire to go find lost locations in the Bible, of all things. He had a very spiritual experience on the moon. He was on the moon. He actually is the first one to quote Bible verse from the moon. And he came back from the moon and he said it just really, really impacted him. He was up there on the lunar surface and he looked out at, at, at the black canopy of space and he saw the earth that was green and blue and white and brown suspended in this vacuum of death, this vacuum of cold, dark space. And it was living and breathing. And to him... He felt that, that, that a master craftsman created God. At that moment, he said he just really had a real cathartic moment. So he came back and he met with me and said, Hey, I want, to, I want you to go look for Noah's Ark with me, of all things. Where I thought if you look for Noah's Ark, that you're wrapped tin, tinfoil around your head and you look for the mothership. I mean, that's a crazy thing to do, but 
you know, I was looking for adventure. I had a little hole in my heart where my badge used to be right there. And that adventure was kind of lost for a little while. And to regain it, I said, let's go over to Turkey. And, and at the time, it was a wild and crazy adventure over there. Turkey was involved in a civil war. What with, year was this? That goes back to 1985. Okay. My first trip with Jim was in 85. And we went and looked for Noah's Ark and didn't find it, but we flew a plane around the mountain. In fact, we set the Iranians and the Turks, and when they landed, the team landed the airplane, we were arrested for spying and espionage and under house arrest and on CNN and news, an astronaut captured. My mom saw it on the news, and I'm over there arrested in Turkey, but they let us go after a little while. But it really... Boy, it just, it was so exciting to be a part of something so adventurous, thrilling as being, you know, in an airplane with the windows open, the doors off, and you could see Noah's Ark at any minute. You know, any minute you're going to see those rotting timbers of this old boat and find that have the greatest discovery of all time change people's perspective of the Bible in a unique way. That was pretty heady stuff for me as a young guy. Just, you know, I was just a dumb old cop for 10 years. So I loved it and started doing other talks. I mean, more expeditions and another expedition would lead to another expedition. Then people would ask me to come speak and I'd go to large conferences and churches and organizations. And after a while, there's some books that spun off from it and now producing documentaries. And it took me in a whole different direction that I'd originally planned to have. You know, you go over the books and expeditions rather quickly. How many published books have you got so far? Well, to date, I have 10 books and have published by Broadman, Holman, Tyndale, Simon & Schuster, those kind of publishers. And now I'm having my books being printed out of New Zealand, international, more of an international presence. We're now, a lot of my books are being published over into Scandinavia, and we have them being distributed all over the world, in fact, in many different languages. But, you know, the, the books, when I was 50 years old, I wrote my first book. So I didn't even know that I could write until someone said, hey, could you write a book? And then I realized I had this skill that I didn't realize, and I'm a good storyteller. So I had these books, and the first one, people went, this is amazing. Can you do another one? And can you do another one? So it's interesting that a lot of times later in life, when we're in the autumn years of our life, we realize we have skill sets that we've never tapped into as young men, because we've pretty much convinced ourselves, okay, this is what I can do, this is what I can't do, and you live within those parameters, but that's really not true. There's probably some great skills that a lot of people will have and enjoy that are quite amazing. Someone told me once, he says, the best books, and the best poems, and the best music has gone to the grave with people. We don't have them today. The best books have been buried with people. I didn't know that they had the skills. So I'd like to just encourage people, you know, to take advantage of every season of your life and try to find those things. And the only way you find those is you've got to really challenge yourself and go out on a limb sometime. And for me, it was writing. And now I'm, I'm doing it as a profession. You know, I think about some of the accommodations on some of your trips overseas. And some privation, a bit of a challenge here and there, a couple of scary things. How do you think that influenced your writing? Well, I always tell people writing is real easy. It's getting the words in the right order that's the hard part. <laughs> so, of course it is. You know, logic makes you think and emotion makes you act. So there's really two parts to writing. You want people to get the cerebral, but it's the visceral that really transforms people, that really changes their hearts. And, and if you write and it's not geared towards changing someone's heart, you, you might as well be writing a catalog for Sears or something. 
your books have to have some way of nudging someone's heart, the emotion side of man, and inspiring the humanity in people that they can do things that they believe they can't do. I, a lot of my expeditions, I take men that have been pretty much saying, I don't have any adventure in my life. I've been in a, in a business and I, it's very linear and it's very controlled and it's very boring after a while. And they say, can I go with you and go on these expeditions? So I've had one man was the former president of Avis Rental Car, and the other was the head of Baylor Medical Systems. And these guys were great on these expeditions because they were like little kids. You know, this is, you know, we're on Tom Sawyer's Island kind of experience for these guys. And when you can bring that out of them, that little giddy kid out of an older guy that's constantly dealing with challenges, that's always fun to do. There's another thing, Bill, that, that these guys did on a trip. I had three industry leaders, one of the biggest industry leaders in the country with me on an expedition. Of all places, Iran. We're doing a high mountain climb in Iran on an expedition. And we had some satellite imagery and some people said they saw something high on this mountain. We were going to go check it out, a biblical note. And so before I went on the trip, I'm thinking to myself, hey guys, when I go on a trip and I'm the expedition leader, it's not a democracy. I know what I'm doing and we can get in trouble if you don't listen to me. So I told my wife, I said, I'm really worried about getting over there and having these guys that are literally have thousands and thousands of employees and so they sat me down the night before the expedition and they talked to me and I go, well, here it comes, you know. And they all said, look, you're the expert. We're going to do everything that you tell us to do and there'll be zero problem. Now, I didn't have this conversation with them. They didn't know I had these concerns, but that told me what great leaders they were because they could tap into the expertise of someone else and take that sort of that controlling nature that they have, put it on a shelf because they knew that they needed to have an expert be the leader. And I thought that was amazing. And they were very compliant. And they had great personalities. They had great fun on the mountain. Never complained. Never it's hot, it's cold, it's and it was dangerous and hot and it was cold. And we didn't have the best sleeping accommodations. You can imagine, you know, up at thirteen thousand feet in a tent where the wind's whipping outside. It's not exactly a mint on the pillow, you know, when you go to bed at night experience. And they loved it. When they came back, what do you think they would say was their biggest aha or takeaway? Well, they told me, they said, first of all, they felt that they were too old to climb a mountain. On that expedition, we had three guys that were over 60 climbing up a pretty rough mountain. And they weren't mountaineer experience, but we had the best equipment and we had some horses to help carry the stuff, which really goes a long way. You're not carting up 70 pounds in your back, but it is still tough because you're going up these areas in a very remote area of the world, in a very hostile area of the world towards Americans a lot of times. And they just came back and said that it just gave them sort of a, a little breath of fresh air that they hadn't had for a long time. They, they didn't realize they could do it. And when they came back, they were sore. But but that's what it is. Most times, sometimes we get to an age, like I was trying to say earlier, we get to an age where we just say, no, I can't go there. I can't push myself anymore because of physical liability. Yes, you can go twice as far as you think you can. When I was on a mountain once over in Turkey, it was uh, I was so exhausted and I was so tired and we had flares going off and the government was chasing us. Kurds and the Turks were fighting and the government thought we were with the Kurds and they were chasing us. They're literally, so we're going and we're going and we're going and we're exhausted. And I told my friend Bob Stuber, like I I just can't take another step. He goes, when you tell yourself you can't go any further, you're halfway there. You got another half tank left in the tank. You've just never pushed yourself that far. So I, and I did, I went from that point on, I did twice as much as I thought I could do because he's right. We put a self-governor on our mind and our hearts and we just don't go there a lot of times. So when you're halfway there, 
You know, when, when, you, when you think you can't go anywhere any further, you're halfway there and there's a whole lot left. You know, so as I think about before you started doing the trips and adventuring and now, what do you think the biggest change for you was the result of all of these trips and adventures? Well, the biggest change is that, of course, I get a lot of public notoriety. I do a lot of radio, a lot of TV, do ABC, CBS, History. I've done just was on Travel Channel. I do all that. But the real change is, is I gain a perspective of humility. And when I was younger, I was full of adventure and full of myself. When I started doing these trips, I thought, hey, I'm a pretty good hotshot. If you, if you talk to like old pilots, you know, you're talking about aviation, you know, that these guys get humble as they get older. And I realized that if you don't look at others around you and treat them better than yourself, then you're really doing a disservice. For instance, I was over in Ethiopia and I'm doing an expedition over there. It's a History Channel show. And I saw a starving little child. I said, well, who feeds him? No one. He's an orphan. So I raised a little money and we helped build an orphanage. Then I saw these kids walking around and I said, well, where do they go to school? Well, they don't have a school. So I raised the money and we have a school, thousand seat schoolhouse over there. Then I saw these woman was complaining about all her friends. Their baby, the babies were dying in this village. One out of every five babies dies within a year. So I just helped raise the money with a guy named Barry Hudson, great guy out of Indi- Indianapolis that it is with his family, Elizabeth, wonderful family. And we got together and, and in a small way I helped build the neonatal clinic over there for these for these babies. Then I start realizing it's not what you do in the spotlight that's important. It's what you do in the shadows. I don't put that on my internet. You know, I'm talking about it now because we're having a discussion about the meaning, what these things have done for my life. But when you go over there and you see these kids in school and they're reading a book and that they wouldn't have a school if you didn't go make an effort to do that. I learned that principle early on. I, I want to tell you a guy I met that really influenced me as much as Jim Irwin. When I was a policeman, I used to have coffee in the morning. At about 7 o'clock in the morning after a midnight shift, I'd have coffee at, at Winchell's Donut on 17th Street in Costa Mesa. And I'd pull in there, and, and I'd have my coffee about 7 o'clock, and the shift went in at 8. So time to unwind and sort of just gear it down, you know, after a night of, of potential danger. And there was a big guy there, usually in the parking lot, holding a cup of coffee and his big fists and real big guy. And I, I went up to him and, and I struck up a great friendship over the time. But his name was John Wayne, the Duke, the movie star. And he would come in, he would listen to the radio and he would be like a little kid just listening to the radio. But, you know, one day these little kids, these little Hispanic kids who were over there with their windows pressed, their noses pressed against the glass at Winchell's. And he goes, well, just a minute. And he walks over there and he puts down some money. I don't know what he put down, but it's probably just just get them what they want, these kids. And he came back. Well, not the fact that he gave the money, because he had more money than he could probably ever spend, but the fact that he would notice these kids and do something about it that really touched me. Here's this guy that bigger than life act, and but he's going over and he's noticing that. And I thought, this is the kind of man I want to be. I want to notice around me those that are not as fortunate. And then I also want to do something about it. So because of that first little spark of influence, now we have the school, we have the orphanages, we have the hospitals being built in Ethiopia. And what's amazing, I was just recommended by Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson. I have a beautiful letter downstairs. I'll, I'll show it to you. I have it in my office. I even framed it. I really enjoy it. But it's addressed to President Trump recommending me to be the ambassador to Ethiopia. And we've got a cop, and I'm being asked to be the ambassador of Ethiopia by Ben Carson to Donald Trump. We've got the hospitals over this. So my life is sort of in a completely different vein than I could have ever hoped or planned. 
And it's sort of these serendipitous things that come in your life that you have to take advantage of. We talked a little bit beforehand about the shows on various channels about your explorations. Talk a little bit about the mechanism and how all that came to be. Well, TV is a consuming business. They're constantly needing things to fill up that bucket. It's like an hourglass of sand going through. You've got to keep putting sand in it, you know, or it's just eventually it's going to go. But they can't turn it over and keep replaying the same things. They do often, but they, they can't. They generally have to have something new to provide. Viewers are fickle. And so when I started doing these expeditions, I'd get a phone call from, let's say, History Channel or Nat Geo or somebody, and they'd say, hey, can you come on our show and do this? And off we go to Africa or off we go to Europe or something. We do these shows. And then I started doing quite a few Ripley's Believe It or Not kind of things that we did for a while there. And so I constantly get asked to go do shows. The, the problem with television today, though, is it's gotten to be so sensationalized that you can't maintain intellectual integrity. See, my whole thing in the police work and my thing in, in, the, in the business I'm in or the ministry that I'm in now with Bible archaeology is that you want to you want to put out the truth because the truth is something that you're proud of. When you're constantly on TV and the, the cameras are going, they're saying that this director says, well, I want you to say it this way. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say it that way. I had a book publisher with a big dollar book thing and said, if you don't put it this way, we're not going to give you any money. I said, well, I'm just not going to do the book. I'm going to say it this way because this is the truth. And so television has a real problem with pumping out information that's truthful. It's usually sensational or it's an agenda that they carry that might not be in accordance with what my agenda is, with my beliefs. So TV sometimes tries to get you to say things, and, and I try to maintain that integrity that I started off with. If you start compromising here, you're going to compromise a lot of other places. Yeah, it usually just starts first. It's easy, you know, once you do it once, you kind of slippery slope there afterwards. You know, I was talking to a friend of yours. We were at a basketball game not long ago, and he was talking about some of the research that you're doing in Jerusalem about sites and this site and that location, maybe it would be kind of fun to talk a little bit about some of that work that you've been doing. Okay. Well, just a brief resume. I've been on 70-some expeditions now. I've been arrested five times in the Middle East for looking for lost locations. I didn't do, I'm not a spy, but I was just in an unfriendly area that they didn't like a guy carrying around a compass and a Bible, I guess. A Christian guy, you know, doing that. Hollywood is doing a movie, and we're in production right now, of a movie, a real movie in a real theater where you go get popcorn and watch a movie, where I was arrested once over in Saudi Arabia and I escaped. And so there's been several books written about it. I wrote a couple books about it. There's been a lot of books written about it and documentaries and a lot of TV shows and whatnot. But let me just give you the short Rolodex of, of the expeditions. I'm looking for Noah's Ark, where is Mount Sinai, the Ark of the Covenant. We found what we think to be Paul's shipwreck off the coast of Malta and the four anchors mentioned in Acts 27 in the Bible. Those four anchors, I worked over there with a gentleman on that project named Douglas Gresham, who's C.S. Lewis's stepson. He owns all the Narnia movies that you see out, Douglas Gresham. So C.S. Lewis was his dad. And then I was involved with, the, of course, the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia and Israel in Egypt. 
more recently I've been involved with where is the correct location of Solomon's and Herod's temples in Jerusalem. And I believe it's not on the Temple Mount, which might cause people to have intellectual whiplash just hearing that. But I do believe that we have really gotten that one wrong, that history is stunningly wrong, where the temples were located on the Temple Mount. And people are right now going, wait a second, everybody says it's on the Temple Mount. And I say it's in the city of David. That's caused quite a stir wrote a book about it called Temple, and it sold like crazy. You can't even keep them in print. They've been selling out so fast. And then more recently, I've been trying to find the correct location of Christ's crucifixion site based on the temple being in the correct location of the temple being in the city of David over the Gion Springs. So we have all these research projects, and I don't have to go out and look for them anymore. Right now, I just sit back and people call me on the phone and says, hey, I found this, and will you check it out? And hey, can we do this? Can we do that together? The problem is, is I overextend myself when I start doing that. We talked earlier about saying no. My wife tells me that I don't have the ability to say no. That's my biggest weakness is I want to be all things for all people. And she told me, she says, Bob, if you can't say no, she said, if you were a woman, you'd be pregnant all the time. <laughs> you, got, you got to learn to say no. <laughs> when you run across controversy, you know, that goes against dogma, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. you know, and whether it's a location. You know, there's various groups over there that have a vested interest. What type of pushback do you get? Tremendous amount of pushback, because most people will live in a paradigm of what they've been taught. I call it the safe harbor of mutual consent. Most scholars are not interested in looking for information to help them make a decision. They're looking for confirmation from others to justify an opinion that they already have. They have a belief system or they've written a book on it or they let a tour over there or they've lectured on this in this certain way that they look at it and they're very hesitant. It's almost impossible to get them off of that tradition. Tradition is a derailer. From a, on a biblical standpoint, I quote scripture, Jesus says your traditions will nullify the word of God. So we're looking at something, wait a second, this is powerful traditions. So I look at things to finding truth in a different way. If we look for truth, there's two ways to do it. Most scholars will come with the premise plus proof method, where they come up with a hypothesis and they get all their source material and they put it around it and they get, and they said, look, I have all these people agreeing to, with me and they all put a lot of footnotes in their books, but these are footnotes on people that agree with them. I can get just as many footnotes as people that disagree with them, but they have a book. And so they try to stay in the safe harbor of mutual consent. They don't go out in the choppy waters of controversy. That's not the way you find truth. The way you find truth is the way cops find truth. The way that I found truth is a police investigator. That's what is the problem and what is the possibilities. That's completely turning scholarship on its head. Scholarship is not finding truth. It's just finding consensus and persuasiveness. But the way you really find truth is you say, what is the problem and what is the possibilities? For instance, on our Mount Sinai searches, the Bible says Galatians 4.25 that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. But everybody's looking at the Sinai Peninsula. They even named the peninsula Sinai because of Queen Helena in the 4th century, I think it is, that she was a fortune teller kind of person. She was the mother of Constantine, the emperor of Rome. She guessed that that was the mountain. And because she guessed, and everybody since that time has just said, okay, they've just been repeating it for so long, no one's ever said, why don't we look into Arabia? Where the Bible says, well, if you look in history, Flavius Josephus, Demetrius, and Philo from 250 BC have said that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. I don't want to do a history class here, but I'm doing this to illustrate that there are ancient scholars, that, uh, historians that have said it, and yet we follow traditions. It's the hook in our jaw that drags us into a place that may or may not be truthful. 
And so there's a lot of traditions that are in families, a lot of traditions in our government. There's a lot of traditions in religion and relationships. Farming, too. Farming. Any, you take yeah. anything, and there's traditions and medicine traditions. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, well, I'm never going to go there, some doctor is going to say, because this is the way they've been taught. And that's the real disservice to truth. And so if we're going to be, have truth, we have to be bold and willing to go against tradition. Now, then you encounter what I encounter is there, there's an old saying, and I'm paraphrasing from F.F. Bruce, who said, we must bear in mind that the cause of learning is expressed by those who are willing to expose their brainwaves to the pitiless criticism of others. No one wants to do that. We all want to have. There's three things that scholars want. They want prestige. They want to be promoted, and they want to be published. And if they start saying something against tradition, they'll not get prestige, they'll not get published, and they will not get promoted. So we're dealing with a lot of university professors that are completely stuck in a rut, and they're so deep in it that they can't look out over the edge of that rut, and they'll never get out of it. And what are they doing? They're teaching the university system, and they're teaching the university system now not to have freedom of speech, not to go against with what they're saying, but to go along, or you don't get the right grade. So someone will compromise, and they'll go along because they don't want to upset professors. Well, that's not education. That's indoctrination. That's things we find in communist countries. We're becoming that because we're not allowed to go to a professor and say, I believe this way in a different way. And because if you don't, then you get ostracized, you get a bad grade. We've all gone through that. You write what they're, what you want them to hear, not what is truth. And so we, we have that today in our culture. We're, the thing about what I do is to try and find truth in, in, in my archaeological work and my research. But I'm dealing with scholars that will attack you vehemently, I mean mercilessly, on the Internet and other places, if you dare to cross them. Dare to. For all the folks that are for lack of a better term, dogma-driven. For the folks that believe like you do on evidence-based work, where do those type of folks usually come from? Where do you, is there a, a broad spectrum of business owners that believe like you do? Well, business owners have are handcuffed in a lot of ways because they don't want to be accused of using their religion for, let's say, they might be showing favoritism to someone who goes to church with them or believes a certain way that they believe. So they have to be very careful. We have to be very careful in everything, even with how we talk to women and women talk to men. We have to be very careful. So we really put a governor on our minds today, and we, we can't have those kind of discussions, those open discussions, you know, at a cocktail party. You can't talk about religion or politics, they say, because mm-hmm. it always, or, or doing family dinners and Thanksgiving. Those are things to stay away from. But these are things we should be able to talk about. But the problem is, is that, is that today is culturally being so politically correct, we're unable to really talk about things openly because a lot of times we don't honor the other person's viewpoint. You know, what I try to do is, is sit and listen and say, please tell me your viewpoint and I'll honor that viewpoint. And I just respect, I say, I expect the same. If we're going to have a discussion, because that's the way you really come to truth, you know, you have to really put away your presuppositions and your emotions you know, about this. What a lot of people make decisions, they'll say, well, they, they, they make a decision based on emotion and they back it up with logic. And we're great at that. We can make a decision based on our feelings and then we can grab all this logic. That's that premise plus proof thing coming in a different angle. You know, and I think about some of the questions I typically ask, you know, and, and as an author, has there been a book that's been influential to you on how you think and how you operate? 
But there's a lot of books. They're, they're mainly the real good books that, that I've written. And by the way, when you're writing books, it's hard to read other books other than, let's say, to write a book. Like I just wrote a book on tradition. It took me eight and a half years to do, and, I've, and I had to read 50 books to get the materials that I needed to help do that, plus travel to Europe and interview a bazillion people. So you don't really have time for that sitting around on, on the, you know, on, on, on the beach and reading a book, which I love to do. But the books that I, I really enjoy to read that I get captured in are the books that are of historical nature, you know, Killing the Rising Sun recently. In fact, I'm reading that right now by O'Reilly and Dugard, I think, or Dunning, I forget, Dugard, I think. Great, great books. The Killing series that's been put out on, on, on Lincoln as well. Because you really learn some things. We really learn from what's happened in the past and how people have reacted over the years, either good or bad. The good players and the bad players. It really, to me, that's what I want to, to learn from is I want to learn from human nature's successes and defeats. And that makes me a person that can respond better to successes, defeats in my own life. On, on some of the expeditions where you go out and and maybe the expedition doesn't work out. You know, at the time, it seems like a failure, perhaps. You know, can you look back over your time frame and where you go, okay, well, you know, in retrospect, it was a failure, but I learned so much. It helped me do other things in the future. Does anything come to mind like that? Well, almost every expedition, there's results in, in a lot of failures. I mean, there's people think, oh, you go over there and you, you find, you know, for, for every time I write something in books, book, say, look, we found. Isn't this great? They don't realize the hours and hours and hours of loneliness, the hours of failure, the hours of missing an airplane, getting your passport stolen from one of your team, and someone getting sick and they're in the hospital. And people always have this glamorous view of exploring that you put a pith helmet on and you walk through the jungle and you find Livingston. And it's not that way. That's another great book is That of Africa about Stanley Livingston. That's a book that I've enjoyed. I just read that. Fascinating book telling about the story of Stanley and where he started his journey. He started his journey right right over here in Colorado. And then he eventually found Livingston over in Africa. But great story. But Everything we do usually is a problem. For instance, I tell you a great story. I was over in Malta. There's a story in the Bible in, the, in Acts 27 and 28 about Paul being on a shipwreck. And it's written about in Acts. We believe Luke is writing it, the Dr. Luke in the Bible. It took place in about 60 to about 63 AD, right in there. We don't know the exact date, but that's about, we, we can put it right in that, those brackets. And I believed I, I knew where Paul's shipwreck went aground, and I was doing a book on it and a documentary on it. And there was a lady in our group. She was the wife of a pastor. And she didn't like the heat because this hotel, this little beach hotel we were on in Marshallock Bay had no heat. And the church bells were going every 15 minutes. It's bong, bong, bong. And so she just went crazy. And I'm not used to that in an expedition. You know, very few women we take. Not that they're, my wife is incredible. I want to make that clear. My wife is amazing on trips. She's better than the guy. She's tougher. But she was very, let's say, prissy about stuff. So I said, okay. I'll take her over to another hotel with her husband, and we checked into that hotel on the other side of the island. After I checked him in, I went down by the beach there, and there was a dive shop. And this old diver said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for these four anchors from Paul Shipwreck. He goes, well, where do you think they are? And I went through, and he goes, well, we found four anchors in the late 60s and early 70s right over here. And they're the same date. And I realized where Luke was saying, top on the Thalassan in Greek, where two seas came together, we were on the wrong reef. We needed to be on the Munchar reef. So in other words, through that, you know, problem, 
this great opportunity came that would never have come unless we changed the hotels, you know. So sometimes you got to realize maybe maybe these things happen for a reason and you need to embrace a little bit more of the failures than, than curse them. <laughs> well, clearly I have a lot of embracing that has been going on. <laughs> <laughs> micro- you know, as we go through here, and I'm thinking for folks to go, well, how do I find you in social media? So how do they find you? That's a downfall in me is I've, I've not been a social media guy. I do have a, a Facebook page that, that I have if they want to go. But Base Institute is my website. They can get to me and read about all my stuff on baseinstitute.org. I have a ton of YouTube videos that are out there. One is called Temple. That's received. That's just going crazy. The Mountain of Fire is on YouTube. They can see my documentaries through there. One is called Golgotha with Bob Cornuke. You can see YouTube there. So we, we, we have great success on, on YouTube. And we're very message-driven because, we were, for instance, we we're going to sell the temple thing. It took us a lot of time and money to put that out there. And then this guy said, well, let's just put it out there because this is great. We want the world to be changed through this. And sure enough, we put it out there, and it's been viewed in the millions now. And different people have been seeing this all over. That my temple, and then my interview on temple, and all these things. The guy just called me and said, "We have over, we've been sending them out there, and over two million people have seen this." I couldn't have sold two million copies of that thing. So sometimes you're better off giving, you know, than just try to monetize everything that you do instead of quantifying. Okay, let me see how I'm going to make money off this. Then you just say, "Look, let me just get it out there and trying to enrich people's lives." And sometimes that works out to be better. You know, I was I was thinking as you were talking of all the places you've traveled and all of the various meals that you have enjoyed in some places and maybe enjoyed a little less in others. What's your favorite dish from your travels that you discovered? That's an easy one. My favorite dish is by far the easiest one I can tell you about. I was with Larry Williams. He's my partner on some of these business trips. He was Commodities Trader of the Year of the Wall Street Journal, nominated twice for United States Senator Montana. His daughter is Michelle Williams, has four Academy Award nominations. Okay, you might see her just in that movie, All the Money in the World. I just saw that the other night. Great, great movie. She's a phenomenal actor. I knew her since she's been a little girl. But Larry and I were over in the desert in Saudi Arabia, and it's where I was rested and escaped, and they're doing the movie on. But we're about seven days, six, seven days in the desert. It was 128 degrees over there. We had no air conditioning. Literally, the only way we stayed alive is just pouring water on us and in our in our bodies, just continually drinking. You know, you can drink four liters of water and not have to pee. You know, you just... just <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so dry over there and you're sweating so much. So uh, we came out of the desert eating just granola bars and, and we called retorts for their little metal wrap meals. And we just ran out of food and we're eating just seeds and kind of bark kind of stuff for about a couple of days. But we came out of the desert. We came to a little gas station called Al Khan Gas Station, Muslim little gas station on the road out of Tabuk. Hot, just hot, hot, hot. You're, you breathe the air and it, your lungs hurt from the air. It's so hot. scares you. And then we go to this gas station. There's nothing for sale to eat there except they had one can of beans. And it was covered with dust. And Saudis don't eat their beans for some reason like this. But it's like a Campbell's can of beans. And it was on the shelf. And we dusted it off. And we bought it. And we popped the lid off. And after being in the desert for so long, just drinking water, I remember licking our fingers, our dirty fingers, and we're rimming inside the can when we're done. But I never tasted anything. It's tasted so good because a lot of times the best drink of water you ever have is when you're the most thirsty. Sometimes the best moment you have is in the toughest experience that you have. 
you know. And so this was, out of all the meals I've had, I remember just, we were just licking the inside of the can. Here's a guy, he's one of the wealthiest guys I know, Larry Williams. And we're in there, two guys with their dirty fingers <laughs> in the desert, licking this can because it was so good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the life lesson or metaphor is for that, but it was just, I remember that was just tasted so incredible. And we both laugh about that often because it was just so wonderful. Well, it certainly gives you a yardstick. Go, are we having a bad day? Go, oh, no. I know what bad looks like. It doesn't look like yeah. this. Well, when you get arrested and you, you go through that, you know, it does it does give you a perspective. You you lead tours over there, too, do you not? Yes, we do. I'm going over. Thank you for asking, Bill. We, we do a lot of tours. I just led a tour to Africa a couple of months ago. Real adventurous thing, looking for, there's a theory that the Ark of the Covenant's in Ethiopia. A lot of people aren't aware of that, but I've done a couple of History Channel shows on it. Just did a Travel Channel show, and it shows up all the time on Travel Channel, on Expedition Unknown. If someone is ever doing mm-hmm. On Demand, you can do the one on the Ark of the Covenant on Travel Channel called Expedition Unknown with, with Josh Gates. Good, good guy. We had a great, great time over there. Good, good film. Good, it turned out to be a pretty good show. But anyway, I'm doing a tour to Israel this November. And we put it out on the internet and we're like sold out just so quick. So we're sold out on that one. But I'm planning some other trips this next year. So if somebody wanted to go on a trip with you, how would they be made aware or how would they find them? Yeah, they would go on Base Institute, okay. uh, you know, website. I'm also working with K House, K with the letter House, mm-hmm. uh, which is with Ron Matson, a wonderful guy, and Chuck Missler, very okay. famous apologetics guy and author. And I'm doing work over there with them. We're doing the tours together. So it's either K-House or BaseInstitute.org, and they'll be able to get the new tours. Because we're planning some new tours next year. The one to eat Israel is incredible because we think we found evidence that shows where the true temple site was located for Solomon Herod. I went over to Israel. I've even met with Netanyahu and, and Abi Dichter, I think, Dector Dichter, uh, his name. I think he was the head of the secret police over there and several major rabbis. This is becoming big news. You're going to hear about this in the next five years. It's going to be big news where the temple's located because most people say the temple of Herod and Solomon were on the Temple Mount, where that iconic gold dome is, mm-hmm. the Mosque of Omar, that you see in every picture of Jerusalem, with that high-walled structure going around it. Well, I think that was the Roman fortress Antonia, and it wasn't even where the temple was, but that's where the, where, where the Roman legion, 10th Roman legion was. So we're finding new things. We're really stirring the pot primarily because we don't look at history through a tube. Mm-hmm. You know, we're saying, wait a second, what are the problems and what are the possibilities? But people say, well, I've, there's no way that that's not it. Well, it's because they don't ever take their minds and go in a different location. So we take people on tours. We do teaching over there. And it's there's something about being to be able to touch and see and feel, you know, these places. You can see the same horizon that Moses saw. You can walk in the footsteps of the prophets. And there's something about being there that takes the heart and the mind to a different place. That's why people love to travel. I think travel is not an expense, it's an investment. I think something's, I think we need to do more traveling, whether it's biblical sites or just traveling in general, seeing other cultures. I think that that's an investment in, in our minds. I think when we're in our deathbed staring up at the ceiling and the nurses are saying he doesn't look too bad and the family's all gathered around you, you know, you're going to have those memories are going to be cherished and locked in there and you never, you, no one can ever take those away from you. You're not going to have anybody ever foreclose on your memory. Yeah. So, I'd, I'd rather have a memory than a thing. 
Thank you. Thank you. And, and that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. If there are people watching this podcast, I like to encourage them that these expeditions really challenge you and meeting new people is just such an enriching thing. And God's really given me a great blessing and I've traveled so many places to so many countries and have had so many experiences. And it all started with being a cop. And that one day when that guy was shooting at me and I got in an ambush and we had that shootout and he got killed, he didn't realize, but he changed my life. Because when I stood over that guy and saw him dead and I was holding the smoking shotgun, really, really, really impacted my heart because I'm a very caring person. I care about people deeply. And I tested very high for mercy. It's hard to test 97% mercy when you're a cop because you never write tickets, you know. You let everybody go. But boy, I tell you that that really impacted me. And maybe that's why I've been out there trying to help so many people that are suffering as well in this world. People may have a notion of the life and the travel and the adventure and stuff. What do you think the biggest misconception is about when you're traveling and when you're doing this? Well, the biggest conception I have is like yesterday, I signed a bunch of autographs. I gave a talk and people are kind of getting their selfies with me and signing autographs. And the biggest misconception is that I know what I'm talking about. I don't. Nobody knows, you know, I'm sure from the, the highest rulers and, you know, when they get up in the morning and they're brushing their teeth and looking in the mirror and they're seeing a guy, they're saying, well, I just hope nobody realizes that I'm just, you know, an imposter. You know, I just go out there and try to, try to do the best with what I know. And I realize that, that I have so much more to learn and that there's so much more I don't know. And that, you know, when you, you really start thinking you know it all, that's when you're really going to get in trouble. I'll tell you a little story. I was climbing up Ararat once and the Kurds were up there and we had to come down the mountain on a different side. I think we talked about it earlier with the flares. That, that's the same story. But I had to come down in the darkness and I couldn't even see. It was pitch black and we could not put on flashlights because we didn't want the government to see us and shoot us. They had helicopters and so So we came down at night and it was the roughest experience of my life. And I almost fell off cliffs several times in the darkness. I actually put my hand on the rump of the horses because they can see at night. And I could just feel from the from the flexing of the muscles when they were going to ready to jump down. And I'd kind of how far they jumped. And then I jumped in the, in the darkness and followed them and just held on to the t- This horse just literally drug me down a hill for like six hours until the sun came up. And I came back and I should have had 50 broken bones and more cuts and contusions. I had a few little bumps and bruises, but nothing really major. I come back home and my wife, I come in the door after this trip and she goes, oh, the trash guy's coming tomorrow. You know, I got in late. She goes, I'm so happy to see you, but can you take out the trash? I said, well, she, and it's late. And, you know, I'm looking at her. She's looking pretty good. And I'm saying, okay, so I take the trash and I'm taking it down the driveway and there was some loose gravel on the driveway. I lived over here in Colorado in Iron Ore, and, and it was steep driveway a little bit, a little bit of a steep driveway. And I hit one of the little small rocks, and I slipped and fell. Now, Ararat's considered to be one of the biggest mountains in the world. It has the steepest incline of any mountain in the world, they say, because it just goes straight up. And it's 600 square miles at this base. It's a monstrous mountain. And that didn't hurt me. This little pebble on my driveway at home, because it's the little things in life that we don't expect when we get careless that hurts us. You know, the big things don't bother. We're not going to go rob a bank. We're not going to go, you know, go out and do these big things. We're careful not to do stupid big things. It's the little things that sometimes so we don't tell the truth or we kind of skimp and do this and do th- and, and do things that are not that moralistic. That Those are little pebbles in life that can have you slip and fall. The small things in the night, we're not paying attention, that are going to hurt us. So I slipped and fell and shattered my elbow from that little pebble. Welcome home. Huh? Yeah, welcome home. But the, you said the mountain didn't hurt me, but the little pebble did. 
You know, for you, you know, some of us have quotes that we favor. Do you have a quote that you like or use frequently? There's a quote that I have, but it's more more of a quote than a poem. Now, if you want me to recite it, it's 15 minutes long. Uh, paraphrase. Okay. <laughs> the poem is by Rudyard Kipling. And, you know, you may talk of gin and beer when you're called to Saipede and you sent your party, you know, it's that. But the last line in the book is, Dean, 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 talking about this guy that carried the water for the army in the Victorian ages of the British. And it says, Dean, 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 you love the Russian leather Gunga Dean. Though I belted you and flayed you by the living God that made you, you're a better man than I am, Gunga Dean. That caused quite a stir in Victoria, England, because here's this lieutenant saying, or this army officer saying that a squidgy nosed idol Gungadin, this black little water bear, was better man than he was. And I've always liked that because I always try to say, no matter what people look like, or where they're from, what color they are, or what economic range they could be, that they could be better than you, even though you're a very successful person. So there's people around us all the time that are anonymous. The waiter that comes up could turn out to be the one that cures cancer. He's putting himself through college. So what I try to do is treat everybody as better than I am. I try to treat everybody, whether they're we we're at the governor's mansion getting served on silver trays or down here in, in the barrio. You, you need to treat everybody. That, that's sort of that way what I live by. That's kind of the, the saying that I like to go by. Well, you know, and, and to touch on the governor's mansion and the reason we were there? Jim Irwin. Honor your very good My friend. My friend Jim Irwin, the eighth man to walk on the moon. Yeah, he was being inducted, I think, into the, was it the Space Hall of Fame? That's, and his favorite saying was that man walking on the moon is not as important as Jesus walking on earth. That was his favorite saying. I always remember what he said. Put yeah. things in perspective. You know, we've been chatting for a while, and I was thinking about advice you might offer. You know, and, and you've led, whether it's been an expedition or your company or tour groups, you know, and there are other folks out there that might be interested in what advice you might offer to a leader that's been put into the role of leader for the first time. What advice would you offer? For the first time? That's an excellent question because I've led quite a few expeditions. You have to be the leader, so you have to take responsibility. When things don't go right, you've got to say, I'm sorry, and I messed up, and I didn't get it. And guys, I hope you give me a little grace here. But a leader, you have to be a leader. You have to be strong. When I go on these expeditions, I have to be strong. There's no whining, there's no complaining, and I don't have anybody do anything that I'm not willing to do, or I'm the last one to get a meal, I'm the last one to step off the bus, I'm the last one when we had a shipwreck to get off the boat, we had a shipwreck off the coast of Malta. Those are the signs of good leaders. But a leader has to be strong, and a lot of times strength gets confused with arrogance, but you have to be willing to take the licks on that one. You've got to be strong as a leader. And you've got to have that character strength. And you've got to make decisions and say, guys, I take responsibility, but I expect you to carry the water also. You're on this expedition. You're on this expedition. And it's really not a democracy. We're not going to have a vote on every decision we make. Because if it doesn't go well, I'm willing to take the responsibility. But you've got to be a leader. And a lot of times, that's not a democracy. You know, I think to go to the close here... You know, if I was to take and talk to your friends and if I could talk to Jim Irwin, you know, and they would say that you had this one thing that you were best at, what would your friends and colleagues say that you're best at? And how do you use that? Well, there's the what I hope they would say about me. I have a guy that's on my board that was been my, the last expedition, the last five expeditions to Ethiopia. He's, he's a Brigadier General Norman Anderson. 
Norm Anderson, great guy. He's on my board and on these expeditions. Here's a guy, too, that's been, you know, as a general, he's been brought, had the drivers and the doors open and stuff, and he gets treated just like everybody else on these trips. There's no favoritism. And he said, Bob, he said, I've seen you now on for over years and years on all these expeditions. And he said, and we talked about this earlier, he says, I've never seen you treat anybody better or look at them worse. He says, you treat everybody the same. And he goes, now I'm a general and I watch you to see. He says, I see you out of the corner of my eye. He said, there's a, there's a, there's a woman over there with leprosy. There's a kid over there with AIDS and you're holding this kid and you're giving him, you're stuffing a little money in his pocket and saying, go home and buy a meal, you know, for your family. That's what I hope people see in me is that no matter who the person is, I treat them, I treat people with dignity. Well, Bob, I tell you, it's been a real treat to be welcomed into your home. And, and while we're sitting here, we're looking at all the golf course and the sun is heading south. The herd of deer have run back and forth, unbeknownst to you. Oh, as really? They're, they're going back and forth? They're, they've gone back and forth already. But I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, well, I want to tell you the one negative thing that is I do cheat at golf, but I tell people when we start the game that I cheat. So I don't know if that's exactly cheating. I know that might be just. It's a fair warning. It's a fair warning. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Bob, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet.